the Backpage Football Podcast. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. When the seagulls follow Chora, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And do I say okey-doke all the time? You do. I don't even say it all the time. You say it about, say, 15 times in the programme. <laughs> People are telling us this is a great day for Irish football. It's not difficult to get Trapatoni if you're going to pay him that amount of money. I'll tell you, it's a great day for his accountants and his bankers. I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. BBF. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Tree at the Back podcast brought to you by BackpageFootball.com Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all decent podcasts So if you're enjoying what we do, be sure to subscribe and leave some love in the reviews and help get the podcast out to more ears This week I'm joined as always by Phil Green and Enda Higgins to take on the madness that is the Premier League and beyond How are you lads? Evening lads, how's the form? how's things? So we have another double header lineup for you this week. Shortly, we'll be joined from Parma by Connor Clancy, Italian football expert and editor of Forza Italian Football to run the rule over the opening few weeks of Syria, including Zlatan's jaunt to the top of the table and the scoring charts at the ripe old age of 39. And later on, we'll be talking to James Pendleton of the Babbling Blues podcast about Everton's start to the season and life under Carlo and Chilotti. Um, but first, Phil... Um, another come, behind, come from behind win for Liverpool at the weekend against West Ham with Diogo Jota coming to the rescue this time. Can you tell me the last player to score in his first three Liverpool home games? You must be following the same accounts as I am, Kev. It's uh, Luis Garcia in 2004. Luis Garcia, you got a spot on. Must be an Iberian link there somewhere between the two of them because Jota's uh, got off to the ground running fairly well and um, at the time of recording here, he's, he scored a nice goal against Atalanta as well in the Champions League. And kind of brings me nicely into into my my initial question for you is, has he played himself ahead of Firmino at this stage, considering how kind of misfiring he has been over the last couple of months? Um, we've got a couple of big games coming up, Manchester City mainly at the weekend. Is Jota playing himself into into that big tree that for a couple of years we thought would be impenetrable, really, if anyone came along to decide that? No one's going to be able to break in through uh, through Sandy Mella and, uh, and Firmino. I think what he has done is he's made it feel like it's a four instead of a three. So when Liverpool were in the summer looking to strengthen that front three, it was seen as very much a, a backup to it. Somebody who could come in, but who wouldn't necessarily expect to start every week. Jota really quickly has now made it feel like it could be any three from four or in the right case, four from four. Um, Firmino is obviously the one whose place is most under threat at the minute because he's the one underperforming his level. But it also allows the luxury that Liverpool haven't had for a while in that if you don't see Mane or Salah on the team sheet, you still think that there's a goal threat there. I mean, like you said, he's gotten off probably to a better start than anyone could have thought. So I think you can rest any one of the three and be comfortable in any version of that front three out of four that, that pops up. Or like I said, the option of doing a 4-2-3-1 because of how we can play out from, from from wide um so like he, he's definitely surprised me with how quickly he, he's taken to it like I, w- I would have obviously been aware of him as a Wolves player I wouldn't have been like I wouldn't have known everything about his game and I would have seen the analysis at the time when he was coming that he was similar to kind of a pre-Liverpool Mane and it's who he reminds me of Mane's first season with Liverpool in how quickly he became quite important to the team and um, so I ho- hopefully he can keep going in this vein I mean he, he, he's shown no signs of slowing down 
Uh, and it's nice to talk about a four rather than a three and then quite a steep drop off to someone like Origi or uh, or Minamino. Um, like I said there at the start, it was another game where Liverpool had to come from behind. Um, it's three now in a row at home this season and it's the first time since Blackburn Rovers in, in 2009 that that has happened and that's back during the... Uh, Morgan Gams Pedersen and, and Chris Samuel at Blackburn. Are you, how how concerned are you about that sort of form? Um, considering Liverpool are they're top of the league, but they're having to kind of really fight and dig deep for results at the moment. Yeah, I, I suppose what's most concerning me is the number of goals they're shipping. I know the Villa one's gonna stack things up, so it's like I think they've conceded fourteen or fifteen in the league now, fifteen maybe, and like <laughs> half of those were in one game. But they're just not keeping the same amount of clean sheets as they would have done last season. And it's not just the absence of Van Dijk because they were conceding when he was there, obviously. Like even things like Alisson, who was definitely outperforming his XG last season, seems to be reverting a bit more to a mean this year. Um, They're expending a lot of energy early in a really hectic season. Um, That said, I mean, last year... It it wasn't a, there. There was come from behind wins, but they they weren't all that. They weren't as frequent. What definitely was frequent and what is common with last year is that kind of muck and bullets, battling wins. Like they were beating Brighton two one at Anfield, and um, last season uh, on the way to winning the, the league by nineteen points and kind of, or eighteen points, whatever it was. Like we kind of forget because they had the league won basically by January, and um, that there was actually quite a few tight wins in there. Some of them come from behind. I think they conceded four. I think they went behind f- four times last season or something um, in their first 15 games. I, I, I think I read that stat somewhere. But it's happened, obviously, four times already this season. Um, I'm not overly worried about it if they because like the character is such that they keep pulling it out. But it's more the work they're having to put in so early in such a hectic season that you fear might catch up an already thin squad or thinning squad. Mm. I think I think the story early on last season was late wins rather than come behind wins. Yeah. I think there was a couple of hairy moments where you're you're getting into the eighty plus minutes on the clock and it's a draw or it's nil all and you're kind of really digging deep. But there was no situ- well, there was very few situations where they were conceding kind of sloppy early goals and having to come back from that. Um, in the have you any take on on Liverpool's start of the season? It's kind of been. Bit doom and gloomy for a for a side who's who's top of the league and and kind of unbeaten and with two clean sheets in the Champions League so far. Yeah, I suppose the injuries in particular in defence did take kind of the wind out of their sails in terms of how you analyse Liverpool. But uh, I think the biggest difference between them and and everybody else um, is that their base level is still higher um, than anybody else. As far as I'm concerned, they can play pretty poorly. I know the Villa result was bizarre, but you know. Somebody made a good point recently that you have to look at September results really as teams pre-season. Um, and it's really in October, November, we need to be, start to be judging teams. And I think with Liverpool, um, they still have that solid base, um, even when players aren't playing well, that they're able to find you know results. And I think their depth as well. I mean, Shakiri has started the season really well whenever he's had to come in as well. Jota now it will be challenging for me. You know, I still think that probably try and fit in the 4-3-3 as opposed to 4-2-3-1 um, that Phil was saying there at the start. But I still think that they're far more impressive than they're given credit for at the start of the season just because they've lost Van Dijk. They've now lost Fabinho. Um, and I still think that they're you know coming from behind, winning games and seeing them through. 
Um, and now with Jota, I think he's given them an, an extra dimension. Um, and we've we've spoken that you know it's the type of season where other teams are looking a bit flat. City still, Chelsea are still trying to find their way under Lampard, and you know Mourinho's uh, Spurs still have a tricky Europa League campaign. And I still think outside of his first eleven, they don't have enough consistent depth. Um, to win the games required to chase Liverpool. So I still think that they're the team to beat this season. Phil, and speaking about depth, there's one guy there that you was a months um, past where you'd forget he was even at the club. Um, and kind of a weird situation with coronavirus where Shakiri was diagnosed positive, I think, while in on international duty and eventually came back ne- negative. But I think with the timing of that, it meant he wasn't sold um, coming up to the end of the transfer window. Um, and now he's kind of in a position mainly up to injuries where he's back playing a really important role. Mm. Um, I mean, what a hell of a player to, to come off the bench and, and a guy who's clearly kind of happy to to stay there and, and give it his all when called upon. He's, he's been a, kind of an underrated one um, in terms of his impact, a couple of big goals. And again, at the weekend with that lovely assist for, uh, for Jota. Yeah, essentially... In his time at Liverpool, he hasn't actually been found wanting whenever he's been fit to be chosen or, or, or picked upon. Um, like most memory, of course, he started the, the Barcelona game in the absence of Firmino and Salah. He also um, came off the bench. He also came off the bench against Newcastle, and um, the game just before that, when Origi scored that really late goal, he said he set up Origi's goal, um, in that title challenge. And like you said, he missed most of last season with this kind of mystery niggling calf injury. Um, nobody's quite sure what was going on and I, I think you're right um, if he hadn't had that kind of weirdness around COVID he could well have gone uh, read a report today in the in the Athletic that said that he, he turned down a move, a move to the Bundesliga in, in order to stay at Liverpool now who that who, who that move was to remains to be seen it mightn't have been anyone particularly salubrious but it just it struck me seeing him come on for the second game in a row and setting up setting up Jota um, or at least having a hand in the goal um, against Midgetland and setting up Jada on, on Saturday that like at best he's fifth choice I mean he, he you you could say he's sixth he's fifth or sixth with Minamino and himself and then even Origi so he's he's in the f- fifth to seventh choice range in terms of starting uh, for Liverpool up front and I don't know if there's teams that have much more at much more threatening options than him I mean I'm not saying that he's the best player in the league but I don't know many squads that wouldn't have him as slightly higher option than that um, he'll he'll definitely do for Liverpool if he can be fit Klopp likes him um, in the right type of game and like I don't think he'll play against Man City for example he wouldn't have the intensity but for these kind of low block teams especially when somebody like Thiago might be missing and Liverpool are missing a little bit of spark um, he's proven himself to be a great option and if he can keep himself fit he could well have a role in these kind of at home to West Ham games for the rest of the season and another point quickly um coming off that game at the weekend is, is Nat Phillips's performance. Um Reese Williams is in the uh team against Atlanta in the Champions League and I think I think Nat Phillips isn't even in the squad, that's why um that's been changed about. But um considering some of the injuries, um Matip hasn't been hugely reliable as well. Suddenly does does Klopp suddenly have options at, at centre back or how do you read it? Or do, like obviously it was kind of situational and I felt coming into the game that whoever is coming up against Sebastian Hilaire, um, sh- you know, should have a handy enough day because when I saw that Mikel Antonio was injured, you know, it's a huge relief considering um, how much of a handful he is. But Phillips did f- fairly well and Reese Williams has done 
quite well as well in his couple of cameos so far. Yeah, I certainly think that they've got options to get them through till January. Um, like Klopp is on the record even before his injury against Everton that Matip wasn't going to be able to play two games in three days, uh, which is why I think you see Reese Williams starting tonight because Matip's being kept back for City at the weekend. But in having Reese Williams who can play against people like Atlanta when there's going to be more ball played and then somebody like Nat Phillips who I actually saw from uh, Sam Maguire on, on Twitter there at the weekend that he was uh, he was ranked number one or number two in Bundesliga 2 last year for aerial duels. Now, that's not the highest bar in the world, but it's really helpful when you're coming up against a West Ham team who are likely to to play direct and fast. And that's what that's how he played well. He, he dealt with aerial threats. He did nothing particularly fancy. He wasn't throwing in 60-yard raking balls like Van Dijk does and like Reese Williams tries. Um, so it was horses for courses. I think in this busy period up until the window opening, I could see between Williams and Phillips filling in the gaps for Matip when he needs to to step back because his body won't let him play the schedule. Um, so it's still not absolutely ideal. Of course it's not. But if you have that kind of option where you can put Phillips in for Burnley and you can play Williams for Brighton, as an example, um, it might be a bit more palatable to get them through to sign in somebody more permanent. And over to United, um, we haven't really covered them from a, a Champions League aspect where it seems to be going a lot better than it does in the Premier League. Um, but you've noticed an interesting trend with Paul Pogba, who's come under a, a fair bit of heat after his performance against Arsenal. Um, and I, I'll save a lot of the stats, which you know doesn't paint Man United in a very good light, but it wasn't the best performances, but... And when it comes to the Champions League, United seems to be pulling out of the bag and, and playing really, really well. Like, what, What's the difference, do you think, I mean, mainly with Ali's selections and with Pogba in particular when it comes to those European nights? Yeah, I mean, I don't think a, a player has ever summed up, you know, a team and their uh, inconsistency as much as Pogba. Um, I do think there's a huge concentration and intensity issue at United, you know, and we saw again at the first half against Arsenal where they just set back so deep. Um, after such a boring draw against Chelsea, I felt that this was a huge opportunity once again to go at them, like I said on last week's podcast. You know, you look at the discipline and the conf- confidence and structure that they had against Leipzig and PSG, um, maybe not with the personnel that we would have expected in either match or the formation, but I felt if you look at Pogba's positioning and concentration in that Leipzig match where he was kind of just stood almost left wing, but he played covered Shaw really well. Didn't get, didn't get himself into those positions where he's, you know, caught on the ball with his back to the opposition, trying to pirouette out from the box. Um, you know, the first time passing was crisp. It was far more intelligent um, and less risky than you would see. And then when he did get the chance to break forward against Leipzig, he, um, you know, he burst through uh, and played in Greenwood. Um, and then you look back to the Arsenal game again, he's just getting caught in positions that really don't suit him. Um I felt that the diamond is something that could suit United going forward, but not with that type of personnel because with Scott McTominay trying to play almost that right side of a diamond, he, he doesn't want to stay there. He wants to come back on top of Fred and then, you know, you're too easy to press against then because you almost are able to throw a blanket over the United midfield. Pogba was trying to stay more left, but then he kept coming inside because United didn't have much of the ball. Whereas if you look in Europe, I think whether it's people underrate United or because their league form is so poor, they actually get a lot more of the ball and a lot more space in Europe. And I do feel that suits Pogba. And, you know, if he two assists in 104 minutes uh, in the Champions League this season, he hasn't had a goal or assist in the Premier League since um, 
since the middle of coming back from lockdown and he's given away three penalties in his last uh, is it four or five matches at Old Trafford. So it, it's a huge problem. Just that concentration again, he just can't seem to maintain it on a week-to-week basis. Um, and Champions League are traditionally bigger matches for United and any team anyway. And they just seem to be more switched on and more in tune into what they're supposed to be doing. Um, like even, even the penalty on, on Sunday was so soft. All they had to do was, was stand up against um, Bellerin, uh, I think it was. And like he was going nowhere, but it's just that loss of concentration. He did the same against Spurs. I know they were 5-1 down at that stage, but um, it was just just bizarre. Um, and, and I think it goes back to when he joined United. I remember Thierry Henry interviewing him in his uh, first week here, and he said, what's your best position? And Pogba just kind of stood there looking at him as if he didn't know what question was asked, you know. And I think we've never really found out that answer. Most of us have said left of a midfield three. Um, but considering the fullbacks and wingbacks, or sorry, the fullbacks and wing fours that United have had um, since Pogba's been there, it's put a lot of pressure on him defensively that just doesn't suit him. And the fullbacks haven't been good enough going forward or defensively. United's wide forwards traditionally don't push back as, you know, Mourinho apparently quoted his to his team, Spurs team before the Old Trafford match. That's why he picked Aurea. So you almost have a player and a team trying to find their identity under a manager who's trying to find his identity, under a CEO who shouldn't be there, under owners who shouldn't be there. It's just <laughs> this perfect storm of, you know, and he's become this polarizing figure where like this lightning bolt of he gets it all, you know. I mean, listen, he's not perfect and you know, the mistakes are piling up, but there is a bit of, you know, I do feel a bit, you know, not that he deserves any sympathy, especially from me, but there are times where I do feel a bit sorry for him because he's the only person in the conversation at times. I mean, whereas you look at, at a match like Sunday, for example, and, you know, in that first hour in particular, you could have picked any of that midfield and, and pulled them off. But I do think going forward, he'll probably be reduced to this kind of cameo role. Because um, I do think Van de Beek really needs to start getting a run on the team now. I said a few weeks ago, I wasn't overly concerned that he wasn't starting. But I do think his impact when he does come off the bench again, even on Sunday, or Saturday, excuse me, United did look a bit more dangerous with him on the pitch. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see how it's managed going forward. Um, but I wouldn't like to see him start tomorrow uh, in Turkey. I just think his confidence shot to pieces at the moment. Mm. I, he's such a lightning rod, like you said. Um and I think people see him kind of jaunting about and especially on Saturday when Fred and Bruno were taken off before him, I think that kind of just really highlighted the, the fact that Pogba's still out there and I think probably increased the criticism that he was bound to get um, after the result. Um, United, it's been a really bad start to the season, especially the home form has been, has been bad. It's Statistically, it's the worst you've started since um, since David Moyes in, in 2013-14. Were you watching Pochettino on, on Monday Night Football and kind of hoping that he'd have a, a missed call by, by 9 or 10 o'clock from, from Ed Woodward? Or do you think it's it's all his job uh, for the very foreseeable future? Uh, it's interesting. Like First of all, a point that's important to note about Pochettino is he says we a lot when talking about his managerial career. He has a very large backroom staff and he demands that they go everywhere with them. So financially... Um, now, that shouldn't be relevant for a club like United, but when you're trying to pinch the pennies, mm. and I assume Solskjaer's contract was nowhere near what Van Hal and Mourinho were on, financially, he still is, um, you know, in football terms. <laughs> or if you were to compare him to a player, you know, you'd be like going after a Sancho, for example. Um, so he's not actually the easiest manager to attain, even now that he's um, available. But I, I think the bigger issue is that 
you know, Woodward has a manager who he can kind of see, take all the blame without being able to demand too much because he doesn't have that track record like a Mourinho, like a Van Hal had. So, you know, as I said, it's easier for somebody like Woodward who's learning on the job to have somebody under him to be learning on the job as well um, and to be making mistakes. I think still, you know, and it's interesting, he's had 100 games now and I think it's 55 wins, but the same issues that he had in his first few weeks at United are still the same issues we're seeing now, which is, you know, not making clubs fast enough poor in-game management. I think what he's trying to do off the field is quite consistent with what most United fans would like to see. But in terms of trying to implement a philosophy, I still don't know what they're trying to do. Sometimes they try and play out from the back. Sometimes they sit deep. Other other times they try and counter. Uh, Whereas Pochettino was talking about when he joined Spurs, they had a first-team squad of 33 players. All of them had played under loads of different managers. They had no identity or philosophy. And he really had to start from scratch and build all that up again. And it took a few years, but eventually they did get that consistency and results. And when he was saying that, a part of me did think that that's probably what this United team need. They've had, you know, Van Hal, who was very strict. Mourinho, who, you know, in his first 18 months, they did play good football. But again, he was very strict in what he demanded from his players. And now they have Solskjaer, who they just seem to get a free reign under. So they don't have that balance of a manager who kind of gives them the freedom while letting them prosper in a structure. Mm-hmm. And I do think that's Pochettino all over. But again, I, I kind of feel like um, the ship has sailed a bit on that. Um, I, I think he was there to be gotten uh, after Mourinho. If they'd bided their time and waited until that summer, I think that would have been perfect. Um, and I do think that they're getting themselves into too much of a difficult situation with Solskjaer where they almost have to back him no matter what now. Um, but if it was up to me, I, I know who I'd be going for. <laughs> um, Phil, I suppose when you watch Manchester United um, and Oli, you're kind of questioning where their identity is um, and how they want to set up. And you can't really have the same questions with Arsenal at the moment under Arteta. Um, and they ended a pretty mental bad run of form against like, so-called big six sides. They hadn't won... Um, since t- January 2015 against Manchester City, um, which is just baffling uh, if you consider how long that's been. Um, 10 draws and 19 losses. Uh, what's your take on Arsenal at the moment? They seem to have found their guy in Arteta. They're slowly but surely finding their identity. Their defence has been really rock solid. I think they're the best defence in the league so far, which is not something you'd usually um, link with Arsenal. They're just maybe missing a, a little bit in an attack. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the bit the bit that's screaming out. I mean, like you said, Arteta has, since he's taken over the job, made a very clear priority of making them more solid. And um, Now, part of that is the, the solidity in playing out from the back and the kind of commitment to keeping the ball. That's very much like hyper pep ball uh, from Arteta at the minute. But what he hasn't gotten to, and um, it's understandable he's, he's not in the job overly long. You, you can't imagine he, he's going to be attaining perfect levels yet but he ha- definitely hasn't sorted out the attack yet and um, even with the like I see people or I heard people after the United game say what if Arteta was managing the firepower that United has but Arsenal aren't exactly short of firepower when you look at the the players that are there they've got some really really good attacking talent mm. I think expensive players as well exactly very expensive like Nicola Pepe was ex- was ex- it was extremely expensive Willian's not the most flared attacking player in the world but he, he cost him a lot of money in terms of wages on, on the four year contract albeit he came on a free Aubameyang obviously the highest paid player at the club now with his new deal um, like, it, it, it just strikes me a little like I, it's because he's building he's building from the foundations up and he's, he's building a team and a structure in a very particular way I just find it a bit mad how 
lacking they are in that spark. And Partey is going to be part of that solution. He was very good on Sunday. He was the standard player on the pitch, definitely, but he was definitely the standard player for Arsenal and a sort of player that probably haven't seen them have in a while. Uh, in that he's like he's very he works very well in the structure. He's very disciplined, but he's like like he's he's a beautiful player to watch as well. It's not it's he's not this like there's a perception of him, and I know it'll probably drive Enda mad because I know he has a soft spot for him. But there's a perception of him because he came from Simeone's Madrid that he's just this destroyer and like he's a spoiler. Yeah. He's not. He's like he's a, he's a beautiful player to watch, and I think he's going to be really important for Arsenal. I assume the next step for Arteta over the next part of this season is that he's going to build a, a coherent attack and a, and a plan that ultimately delivered. Because I don't, Arsenal could have played for a while there, and if it wasn't for the soft penalty, I don't know if they would have scored. Um, it reminds me a small bit, like not as extreme, but like Jim McGuinness when he took over Donegal, um, what he did in the first year in 2011 was extreme defensive solidity. And um, the second year, he turned them into a counter-attacking, very fluid, very attractive to watch team. Arteta might be doing something similar. He's getting the basics drilled into them. Very, you can see it very clearly from the way they play it from the back. And uh, you assume the next thing they're going to do is 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 moving on up top. But um, great win for them, and they definitely seem to, as you said, have an identity, which is something they probably haven't had since, like, well, other than being a banter club since um, kind of twenty ten under Wenger, probably. Yeah, there's this type of paradox with them because if you look at their best attacking play under Arteta. If you were to put a compilation together, Ozil would probably be in the heart of it, really. Um, and now he's not there. And they almost have that perfect structure now for number 10 to link the midfield and the forward line because you, you can sit party and then Jacker or Salvaios. And then you could have a number 10 in front of them behind either, you know, two of Lacazette, Aubameyang, Pepe uh, and Ketia. So I do think they're almost set up perfectly for that formation, but the problem is they don't have Ozil anymore. So it'll be interesting to see if they can find a replacement for him because uh, I do think that's the missing piece. Um, you know, they pressed United really well, but as Phil said there earlier, you know, that as the match was going on, they were looking more and more toothless, really. Um, and somebody like Ozil gives them that structure um, to play around. And it's just a shame now that we can't get to see him play with ideally what are players who would more who would be more suited for him than the ones he had uh, previously at Arsenal. We're joined all the way from Parma by Forza Italian football editor Conor Clancy to talk about the start of the Serie A season. Thanks for coming on, Conor. I hope you're well. Yeah, not too bad. Pleasure, guys. Thank you. Good stuff. Conor, let's start off with Milan and Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He's 39, he's had his MLS spell, which usually signals, signals the end of a, a player's career, at least at a, a high level. Um, he absolutely killed it over there. And now he's he's come back into Syria and whatever elixir of life or Tiernan Og sort of thing AC Milan has going on, uh, he's playing like the, the Zlatan of old. Um, since his return last January, he's been involved in 22 goals and 22 games. And Milan's at the top of the table. What, what what's the story around Milan um, at the moment? And do you think it's sustainable that Zlatan keeps up this sort of format at uh, that ripe old age? You say he's thirty nine, but does anyone actually have any evidence for this? <laughs> I I refuse to believe it. And with with each passing week, it becomes even more improbable that that is true. He's I know this is a word that's been said of him a lot, but he's like he's a freak of nature. You know, he's 
he's not human. He has all of these jokes about how he's a how he's a lion and how he's a god. But when you see him play nowadays, you kind of have to question. Oh, he might be onto something there, you know, because <laughs> he really, really is a special talent. And yeah, like you said, he came back from MLS. Everyone thought that was him him signing off, and. Basically, since he's rejoined Milan, the club have transformed. And Stefano Pioli's kind of reaping the rewards of it. He's a coach who's been around quite an average middling Serie A coach. And he's just riding the wave that Zlatan has, has created. But I think Pioli also deserves a little bit of credit because quite a simple thing, but he's playing players where they want to actually play. And believe it or not, that has helped Milan turn their fortunes around. And yeah, Ibrahimovic is huge. Everyone loves him, even if you don't support Milan. It's hard not to crack a smile when you see him doing some of his ridiculously flexible touches, taking a ball from seven feet in the air and killing it dead. You know, he's he's a phenomenon. Other than Zlatan and a couple of others, likes of Simon Kerr, it's a really young side. Um, and I know there's been a kind of Juventus dominance over the past decade. And I think it's, it's kind of mad to think that Milan haven't won a title in, in 10 years now. Is there any indication that they're building a side that could go on and win things again? Um, especially with players like Sandro Tonali, who seems to be one of the, the next up-and-comers in, in, in European football. Yeah, I think this year is a big opportunity for them. And it's in part because they have improved dramatically compared to what they were doing one, even two years ago. But I think the bigger factor is, and this isn't to take anything away from what they've done, it's that it's a, the whole football world's a bit crazy at the moment, right? So you could see crazy league winners in a lot of different players in, in a lot of different countries. So if you look at the Serie A table as it is now, I wouldn't be surprised if any of the top six, all right, maybe not Sassuolo, but if any of the top six won the Scudetto, I wouldn't be surprised. And for the last 10 years, Eight of those, you've said it's it's Juve's. Last year, you said, all right, maybe Inter would win it. And two years ago, you said maybe Napoli will win it. But we've never had a situation where there's been more than two candidates for the Serie A table in, in so long. And yeah, in, in part, Milan do look like they have built something. Like you said, Sandro Tonali's come in. and I mean, he can't really find an established place in the team because Frank Kessie and Ismail Benacer have just been so good. Tonali's the other guy who comes in as plays in, in that kind of double pivot that they have. And then... Akan Chalanoglu is one of those guys who is finally playing in the correct position after, I think it's three years. He's playing as a number 10 and he's delivering his best form. And at the back, I mean, Gianluigi Donnarumma playing behind Romagnoli and Kier. That's a really solid defence, you know, and they do look pretty, I'm not going to say well stacked because beyond their starting 11, they don't have too many options. They've got the likes of Ante Rebic, Tonali, as we said. Raheem Diaz has shown to be a talented player when he's been given a chance. But after that, I'm not quite sure they're that great compared to the other teams. But as things stand, you don't know what's going to happen if the season's going to finish, how it's going to impact on other teams. But yeah, I, I think there is, and I cannot believe I'm saying this, there's every reason to believe that Milan can win the Scudetto this season. You mentioned Stefano Pioli there earlier. He's he's kind of bounced around Syria at this stage. He's been at, to name a couple of clubs recently, Bologna, Lazio, Inter, Fiorentina. What's his, um, his perspective in Italian football since he's probably, after Inter, is probably the his biggest job he's had yet and 
he seems to be uh, be doing a fairly good job so far. Yeah, well, like you said, the clubs you named there will be by a by a distance the bigger ones, right? He also had Kevo, Sassuolo, Piacenza. These are like nothing clubs, and or at least Sassuolo were when he was there ten years ago. But his reputation is kind of a lot of people have quite some sympathy for him because he came into Fiorentina in his last job, I believe it was before Milan, and he was dealt an impossible hand because obviously Captain Davide Astori passed away during a trip to Udine in, in the team hotel and Pioli was very much responsible for trying to rebuild from that impossible position and to his credit he did a, a respectable job and then after a while it just I don't know if it went stale or if it was just there was too much going on away from the pitch and they needed a, a break from that previous era to, to start afresh and to, to have new players and new mentality and to think about something else but yeah, with, with Inter as well, and even with with Lazio, he did respectable jobs, but nothing remarkable. Inter, it went wrong, but Inter were a a bit of a basket case. You know, it was a circus. Nothing ever went right there until Conte for nine months, and now it, I mean, Conte's reverting to old crazy Inter again. But yeah, Pioli's reputation—he's not exactly a a coach you'd expect to be winning the Scudetto, but he's a respected coach I would say over a, a short period of time at a club maybe I was just going to ask um, is there any indication um, with the Milan ownership you know of how much time he's going to get because um, I suppose since Massimiliano Allegri left um, back in 2014 it's been a little bit of a uh, an in and out there you really forget that uh, Clarence Seedorf had a spell um, and more recently Gennaro Gattuso who we'll, we'll get on to um, a little bit later on is there any indication with his ownership that if Piola does a job that he's going to be given time to, to, to stick with the squad and especially considering how young they are? It does seem that way and the, the proof's there through the summer because his contract was originally supposed to end. He came in on a temporary deal. I can't remember if his contract was actually ending last summer or if it was to run through until 2021. But all signs suggested that Milan were going to appoint Ralph Ranić as the coach and there have been contact, there's conflicting stories, but it seemed like everything except for a signature was in place for Rani to come in. But Pioli did so well from January until when, when did the season end last year? July, I think it was, right? Um, that They backed him. They said, all right, well, you've done well. We're going to repay you. And they extended his contract until 2022. And unless there's a disaster on the horizon, I don't see why he won't finish that out. And, probably extend again in 2021 get another year on top of that so i don't know as as it stands purely looks like he's going to be there for for a couple of years to come yeah uh connor one of the um the biggest moves in not just italian football but in world football over the summer was juventus's decision to replace their manager uh not so much that they parted ways with Maurizio sari things never really seemed to click there but more so that they didn't go for somebody like Maurizio Pochettino or somebody more obvious, and instead went with their newly appointed under-23s manager, Andrea Pirlo. Um, Pirlo, even though he fits into a trend of these kind of club legends being appointed as manager, you think of like Lampard, Solskjaer, mm. Sedan, he feels a bit more like a manager you might have given a transition project to, and even though Juve have added some youth uh, to their squad in the past summer I don't think a team with Cristiano Ronaldo could ever be described as anything other than kind of a, a win now team um, can Pirlo with his 
uh, lack of experience of any managerial level, really. Can Pirlo be a win-now manager, and can he deliver what the Agnellis really want, which is success in Europe? Um, early evidence would suggest no, and <laughs> I, I, took, I, I still, even now, however long it is, two months, three months later, I can't understand the thinking behind the appointment of, of Pirlo because it seemed like you, you touched, and quite rightly, on like coaches being appointed because of the reputations they have at clubs. And Pep Guardiola was kind of the first of that trend almost, but at, at least Pep had cut his teeth with the youth academy, right? He had worked at the with the underage sides and worked his way up at Barcelona. Pirlo hadn't even taken a training session any level like he'd never coached teenagers on their way to being professionals his first training session I mean he's overseeing Cristiano Ronaldo it's it's bizarre and it has seemed over the last couple of years that Juve have wanted to be a club that they're not you know they are all conquering in Italy but the thing that has evaded them has been the Champions League and they've wanted to be a European powerhouse they're not that the the closest they came to it was when they identified what they were good at under Allegri, which was defending, being solid, and scoring when you can. They got the two finals with Allegri. They were very, very close to winning the Champions League then. Sarri came in and it seemed like it was almost, um, he was the transitional manager and he was going to get them playing more possession-based football with a view to appointing Pep Guardiola down the line. I don't know if COVID came and upset that, you know, trying to appoint Guardiola in, in this time mightn't be as straightforward as it would otherwise have been. But, I mean, Sarri, just, it just went wrong. It was always a strange appointment for him to go there, given his past, like being Tuscan and having coached Napoli. I mean, two of the places that you can't go to Juve from, he did it from both. And, yeah, the, the Pirlo thing, I just think it's... A disaster. I think it will be a disaster. I think it'll be interesting to see if Juve have what it takes to sack him. I personally don't think he will be sacked this season. And I think it might come down to him having to to walk away at some point. I'm not I'm not quite sure how this ends in anything other than disappointment for, for Juve and Pirlo, unfortunately. of the mid-2000s, uh, Gennaro Gattuso, who's facing into his first full season down in Naples, having taken over from Carlo Ancelotti at the start of the year or end of last year, like that kind of time warp. Um, they're coming off their worst league finish in seven or eight years, uh, having been probably, like you said, the second best team in, in, in Italy under Sarri, um, but they did win the, the Coppa Italia last year. Um, they're in this kind of strange position, that I feel, where it, they've got a few holdovers from the Sarri team, such as Mertens and Koulibaly, spliced in with a few new arrivals, most obviously Victor Osimhen in, in the summer for quite a good deal of money. Um, with, as you mentioned, Serie A being probably more competitive than at any stage in the last decade, what's your read on where Napoli are uh, in, in that race for, for potentially a Scudetto? They're up there. They're definitely up there. If it was a normal season, I'd say they'd be, they'd be hoping to get into the top four. But now the the idea of a top four doesn't really exist <laughs> at the moment. There's there's very much five or six teams who are just kind of landing blows wherever they can. And Napoli are one of those teams. Gattuso came in basically just having to clean up a mess because Ancelotti, for, for the reputation he has and for as much as I love him, 
he left a chaotic situation. Him and Lorenzo Insigne, the Napoli captain, Napolitano adored there, weren't able to be in the same room as each other by the end because they had such a bad relationship. And if Sinia's unhappy, it's hard for everything, or it's hard for anything to go well at Napoli. And yeah, Gattuso came in, kind of just got everyone smiling again and they're getting the results of that. They've got some really, really good players. You mentioned Koulibaly and Mertens. They signed Costas Manolas at the beginning of last season as well. He's now starting to find a partnership with Koulibaly at the back. Mm. Fabian Ruiz is one of the the most satisfying players to watch in all of Europe, I would say. And then they've got that front three. Ozyman has settled nicely. They've got Patania now as as backup. He's a bit of a lumbering striker, but he found his feet with Spal, having struggled a little bit with Atalanta to score. And they've got options. Uh, Connor and Napoli were beaten at the weekend by Sassuolo, who've started the season very well. There's almost an Atlanta vibe to their matches in terms of you know you score three we'll score four they actually went to Napoli with a good few injuries and still got a 2-0 win I feel like their luck is changing if even if you look at the game they had against Napoli last season those three or four offside decisions that all could have gone either way if they hadn't gone to VAR whereas this year they just seem to be getting a bit more rub of the green and if Berardi and Caputo can stay fit they might be able to put a good season together how do you rate their chances? I love them. I absolutely love them. And they've been doing this for quite a while as well. This season, they are doing it better than they ever have before. But yeah, I'd I'd fancy Sassuolo to make a real challenge for the European places this year. And who knows, maybe the Champions League places, maybe the title, you never know. But I think their ambitions will be to, to qualify for the Europa League because this is a club that, it's a tiny club. They're from a, a town of about, I think 30,000 people, the point where they can't actually play in the town they're from because the stadium's too small and they can't justify building a big enough stadium in the town because it's just too small. And so they play in Reggio Emilia, which is controversial. They now own the stadium there. But Roberto De Zerbi, the coach, is doing a, a phenomenal job. He's brought players kind of just from all over Italy and and abroad. Like Vlad Kirakesh, for example, I'm sure you'll remember him from Spurs. He's now at Sassuolo doing a half-decent job. And they don't really care about defending too much, which I suppose draws the comparisons with Atalanta. They just score, 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 and try to score more. And Ciccio Caputo is one of the best stories in Italian football at the moment. Domenico Berardi on the right is someone who probably should have left Sassuolo maybe five years ago. He didn't, and maybe he wouldn't be as good if he had. And then on the left, you've got Jeremy Boga, who was on the books at Chelsea until going to Sassuolo, I think on loan originally. And they've signed him now. And he's probably going to leave if... He probably won't leave in January. He'll leave next summer, you'd imagine. And they'll get a bit of money from him and he'll probably do well at another club. But yeah, Sassuolo are great. And I'd always urge people, if they have the chance to watch Sassuolo, watch them. You'll You'll be entertained one way or another, even if they're not like scoring themselves, they'll be a mess at the back, which is always fun to watch. Yeah, you touched on them in um, some of your uh, other answers, but um, Inter and Conte, it looked like a ticking time bomb over the summer, um, but he eventually got what he asked for, which is a bunch of 35-year-old former Premier League fullbacks. <laughs> um, obviously, struggling defensively this season, they've lost Godin, who's um, moved on, Skriniar, 
recovering from coronavirus, but it was out of favour anyways and hasn't really struggled under Conte, which has surprised me. Um, and struggled at the weekend. We're lucky to get the 2-2 draw. How do you feel um, they're going to go this season? Struggling again in Europe this year as well, which you know is now the character for Conte, which always puts a bit more pressure on as well. Mm, I think it's going to blow up, to be honest. I, I think it is. You said it was a ticking time bomb. I think it still very much is. I don't see how this ends well for Inter. Conte has become insufferable. Um, even for me, I, d- I don't support Inter. I don't dislike Inter. I have no ill feeling towards them. But my God, when you listen to Antonio Conte talk, he is so negative all of the time to the point where you just question, why Why are you even doing this job, Antonio? Because you never seem to be happy. And he, he makes some strange decisions. Like last year, uh, Nicola Barella and Stefano Sensi were probably two of their most exciting players at the start of the season. Sensi had come in from Sassuolo and Barella had come in from Cagliari. And they had been really, really good. And then I think it must have been about November, October time when Conte starts moaning and saying, oh, well, our two big signings came from, from Sassuolo and Cagliari. You can't expect us, expect us to do anything. And they're like, that's so disrespectful to the players that you've signed. And you also spent a bucket load of money on Romelu Lukaku and the year before Lautaro Martinez. You've got Diego Godin in. He just never seems to be happy about it. This year, he he got rid of Godin. He's got Nangolan and Perisic back, who he tried desperately to ship out. He's playing Perisic as a left wing back. He's got Andrea Renocchia, who Inter have spent the last decade trying to get rid of. They almost got rid of him on deadline day this past transfer window. And Conte begged them on deadline day with a move agreed to Genoa to stay. And now they've got this ridiculous back three where you see Renokia and Alexander Kolarov playing in the same back three. Kolarov can't play in a back three. And Renokia can't play for a good team in Serie A. And they're playing together. And it's a disaster. I can't see it ending well. If Lukaku is still out for a little while, I could see things going quite badly although they do have Atalanta at the weekend and Atalanta playing in Europe usually don't do too well after European games so who knows they might get a big win at the weekend and build on that but I wouldn't fancy them Connor one last word I suppose on Atalanta um, that you just mentioned there and I suppose they had the amazing run in the Champions League towards the end of last season which uh, pushed into the summer obviously and you know, where are they in the grand scheme of things in terms of competing for the title? Because they seem to be similar to how you described Sassuolo in that they're kind of an entertaining side to watch. There's usually a loads of goals. Um, and I know it, as we record now, they're they're losing final currently to Liverpool. Um, <laughs> so uh, they seem to be a, a fairly, you know, kind of busy side in terms of, of either conceding a lot or scoring a lot. But is that enough to get them into the conversation to, to, to in terms of, of winning the, the Serie A this year? I think they'll, they're up there, yeah. Before the season, I I actually said that. I, th- I think if you finish above Atalanta this year, you'll win the Scudetto. I'd have them as real candidates. They've improved every year. These results, like what you're seeing at, at the moment against Liverpool, they will happen and they will always happen. They're, they're not going to stop. You know, that's just what they do, the way they play. When things go wrong, they go very, very badly wrong. Like in the first season of, of Gasparini, they were beaten 7 
one, maybe seven nil away at Inter, who were terrible. Last season they got beaten five one against Man City. That these results happen, you know, it's it's just kind of something that Atalanta fans accept as well. Because more often than not, they're scoring loads of goals. They've they've got a few problems at the back, particularly Jose Luis Palomino, who if you're following me on Twitter, you'll see me complaining about him tonight. <laughs> um he's he's a disaster. He's I don't really understand why he still plays. And yeah, when when one or two players are missing, it does tend to fall apart. Like this evening, Gossens and Martin Derone are both out. They're quite big players. And Martin Derone particularly protects the back three quite a lot. He's not there. They get exposed, as you're seeing. Uh, Pashalic just can't do that same job. We mentioned a good few sides tonight, and we even left out a couple of teams in Europe, like Lazio and Roma, but... We're very early into the season, six games, but is there any side you'd, you'd hang your hat on at the moment that could go on and, and win it out? Sorry, they broke up there a second. Was Serie A or the Champions League? Serie A, sorry. Um, at the moment, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to make a prediction. Like, I guess <laughs> Milan would have to be the favourites. Milan or Napoli, I'd say, because Inter, I can just see them expl- imploding. They should be the favourites. They have everything to be the favourites, but I just don't trust Conte to keep a lid on things. Juve, I don't think, will win it this year. Um, it's quite nice to say that for the first time in a long time, but um, <laughs> should be Inter, but Conte is unpredictable. Absolutely wide open. Thanks very much for joining us, Stephen Connor. Pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. We're joined by James Pendleton, host of the Babbling Blues podcast. So about Everton start of the season. Welcome on, James. Hope you're well. Yeah, you too, mate. Nice one for having me on. No hassle at all. So um, we've caught you at a bad time, really, considering how well Everton had started the season um, during title contender conversations there for a while before the defeats to Southampton and Newcastle kind of put a, a mute on that. But you must be pretty happy with the progress otherwise. Yeah, I think it's still a really, really good start to the season, really positive start. I think if you'd asked anyone after that Bournemouth game when Julian Stalin has scored to make it 3-1 right at the end of the of the season, if you would have taken where Everton are now, you absolutely would have said yes. Um, it's not just the league, obviously, in the quarterfinal of the Cup as well, which is nice, and a couple of obviously poor uh, results and performances, but I think everyone's sort of quite calm on it at the minute because obviously we've had some, we had some injuries during those games and missing some key players, so... Just hoping obviously we can go again against United this weekend and you can obviously put it down to being a blip rather than a full-blown disaster or anything like that. I suppose you've a steady hand there in Carlo Ancelotti, um, proven manager, you know, decades of experience. What's what's he brought to, to Everton that has he um, turned the corner, I suppose, and, and, and in such good form at the moment? Well, I just think compared to Marco Silva, you know, the, the chalk and cheese, obviously Silva's done bits around Europe but but not much and I think when you get in a bad spell under someone like Silver it's very difficult for them to, to to sort of pull you out of it whereas I think with Carlo there's always going to be that, that trust there no matter how you know this this ends there's always going to be a, a level of trust towards Ancelotti that he's been there he's done it and you look at the last couple of games 
there's no one panicking, I don't think, going into the Man United game other than you know, the uh, the most hysterical of Evertonians, but you know, all fan bases have them. I just think he's brought uh, someone that the fan base are going to really appreciate, a born winner and someone who can attract top players. I think the confidence level will go up just like that. And, you know, he's versatile in terms of his shape, in terms of the players he uses. I think the fact that he came in and rather than doing what I think a lot of managers do and try and sort of put their stamp on it straight away, I think he's got us back to basics and got us going back up the table again before he started to uh, move things around a little bit. Uh, you look at the, some of the players we had last year playing in that four four two. It was it was really painful to watch at times, but it, there wasn't anything he could do about it. Obviously, you know, we had the, the January window and not a window Everton were ever going to spend any real money in. So I just think he's, he's come in, he's put us back to basics. Now he's trying to put his stamp on the side, bring his own players in and we look all the better for it. I mean, he's brought such a, a huge reputation with him um, and a positivity. I mean, it must be since the David Moyes area where, you know, Everton fans must have that kind of wave of positivity and neutrals looking on or probably looking at Everton and, and enjoying how they play and, and, and keeping an eye out for the results. Yeah, no, definitely. I think you look at the, the last few managers Everton have had and obviously Sam Allardyce is probably the... Uh, the lowest ever that's the, the worst football I've ever seen an Everton team play. Uh, you look at Ronald Koeman, who by all accounts was a bit of an idiot, and you look at he's not exactly doing very well now at um, Barcelona, and you have Silver, who was a nice enough fella, but I couldn't tell you what an, a typical Marco Silver goal was during his tenure type of thing. Yeah, we had no real definitive style, whereas I think a manager comes in like Ancelotti and it gets people to sort of open their eyes and, and look at Everton a bit better than maybe if they've got... You know, with the delusion of Roberto Martinez in charge or the, the pragmatism of, of Sam Allardyce were just a much better side to watch. And I think when we were winning those games, there were other people who were looking at us and they were thinking that was another, the real deal. And I think certainly once we got our strongest 11 back, we haven't got the squad to do anything ridiculous like challenge for a league or probably even Champions League. But I think once we have that first 11 back, if we can keep them fit, then it's kind of the limit. So. The business um, in the summer kind of is looking pretty shrewd so far and I must admit I was very sceptical seeing um, so much money spent on Alan who's 29 at this stage um, and James Rodriguez as well who's 29 as well but what do I know really and those two along with Abdullah Dekore and Ben Godfrey looks to have been a, a really decent transfer window for, for Everton Yeah it was really really strong I think you know, you talk about being a bit sceptical towards Alan. Uh, I tried to find it earlier. I sent my mate a WhatsApp message about him saying I wasn't keen for, for the same reasons. You know, Grant Tommy's 29 and he hadn't had a good season under Gennaro so and Napoli. And you're wondering, is the, is the hunger going to be there? Is the fight going to be there? But I think I, I could appreciate why he went away from the idea of signing younger players, the likes of yeah, Moise Keane, for example, who obviously came in last summer, or Alex Wobie signed these younger players with Charleston as well. I think moving away from that and getting players who can come in and make the impact now because Everton can't afford to sort of sit around for any longer. They need to bring players in who are going to make impact now. And I think, you know, certainly with Alan, for example, he played excellently against Tottenham and he showed Everton what they were missing in, in that midfield since just a gay left, really. Um, and then obviously he talked about Abdullah Decore, who's probably just the wrong side of the, the sort of um, age mark, if you like. He's 27 now. I think he's 28 maybe in January. So, I think, again, same same worries, but at the end of the day, I think a player comes in and makes an instant impact, you, you try and forget about that. But I think the main thing with all three of the deals, of the three main ones at least, was the fact that Alan was looking at £40 million and then he comes in for about 20, 22, 25, something like that. Decore similarly, it's £35 million-ish, comes down to 
20 odd and then obviously Hammers. Some people say he came in for free. Some people say he paid about 12 million, which was the rest of his contract. But at the end of the day, it's far lower than the 20, 25 million that was being spoke of originally. So I think, again, it's just the positivity levels go up when, you know, the, the deals come further down and it's no longer 27 million quid on, on Sheng Toshin or 20 million quid on Fear Walcott, which is just never going to happen. So, yeah, I think I think the positivity comes from the, the caliber of the signings as well. You mentioned Hammers there and. He's probably a player whose reputation was kind of on the downward spiral for the last couple of years at Bayern and Real. Um, he's looked absolutely fantastic so far. And we were talking a couple of weeks ago after the, the Merseyside Derby, you know, seeing the player of, of the calibre of Hemis and Thiago in a Merseyside Derby, you know, made for a little bit of a change for what we were used to over the past couple of years. Like, what, how good has Hemis been so far? And obviously, He's out injured at the moment, and that's already seems to be uh, be felt by the side. But he he looks every bit the player that you kind of might have had an idea he was over the last couple of years in Europe, but uh, didn't seem to be showing it. Yeah, he's been absolutely unbelievable. I think straight away, you know, just like that, people are talking about him being the, the most skillful player since Andrzej Kinchelskis of, of the mid nineties. Uh, people saying he's the most skillful player they've seen play for Everton. Those sorts of things have been have been leveled at him, and he, and he has been absolutely fantastic. I think it's a bit of a shame, obviously, with the derby. I don't think Thiago probably wasn't one hundred percent fit, and he still looked great. Hamez definitely wasn't quite one hundred percent fit, and still looked really good as well. Um, but I think if you looked at the, the games previous to that, he was absolutely pairing against um, Tottenham away. And then West Brom, he was fantastic. Brighton, he was the best player on the pitch by a mile. So he's just been excellent. And I think, again, looking at the, the injury record is a bit of a worry coming in. And obviously, he's out of the minute, as you touched on. But I, th- I think it's one of those where no matter how bad a player's injury record is, if they come in, they can just get that bit of luck for a year where they can just try and stay relatively injury-free. I know he's out with the minute, but it doesn't seem too serious. And if he can play 30, 32 games this season, I'd be absolutely over the moon with that because you're seeing the difference he makes when he does play and when he's on it because you know, he just glides past players even though he's not the quickest by any stretch of the imagination, but he just looks like he's got 10 yards of space around him at all times. And... Yeah, he's, he's linking up really well with the, the good players who were at the club before this summer. You know, your Luca Deans and your Calvert Lewin and your uh, Richarlison, who were three really good players in a really, really poor team. But you bring in other players in like Hamez and Alan and Decore, and all of a sudden the side as a whole, the first 11, should I say, as a whole, looks really, really strong. James, you talk about the impact of the new signings, but um, somebody who's obviously been the standout player, not just this season, but really since Ancelotti has come in, is uh, Dominic Calvert-Loon. Um, did you expect him to be able to get to the level he's achieving now so quickly? I mean, he was always good in the air, but was kind of one of those players who you, you weren't never really sure, was he a wide forward, was he a number nine, could he find that sort of consistency? But really, his record before and after Ancelotti, they couldn't be more different. How surprised are you by his performances? Um, I'm not. I'm not convinced. Surprised at the word. I think what I would just say is he's been terribly mismanaged. And I think when you come into a club, and for example, Ronald Koeman signed him. Um, well, people say Dave Unsworth signed him, maybe. But I think if you see a lad who, who's six two, good in the air, I think he had the highest leap at the club uh, the first summer when he came. Obviously, one of those bizarre things people um, sort of uh, or people at the club sort of measure. I think if you look at him, I don't know why people weren't just saying to him, "You need to if you beef up and if you." 
stay inside the stay inside the area, you're going to be absolutely deadly. And I think the last couple of seasons, as you say, he was played out on the left by Marco Silva, which was just what it wasn't his position. And then he was played as a, a bit of a pressing forward, making himself a bit of a nuisance. Obviously, we had those good home games towards the end of Silva's first season against United and Arsenal and, and Chelsea and Liverpool, and he was just a nuisance. But he didn't score, and he was a player who. 12, 18 months ago, I was saying he's a good striker, but he just can't score. And he, you can't get away with that in the Premier League, I don't think. So he's he's beefed up a lot. He, he's, a, he's a lot bigger in terms of his, his shape. I think he's more selfish. He wants to stay in the area. He wants to attack crosses. And I think now we're just sort of playing to his strengths. And have we done that a couple of years ago? I think we'd be looking at a player who's even better than he is now. So I think I'm surprised in terms of how many goals he scored because I didn't see him ever scoring a hat-trick for Everton. That wasn't something I thought you'd get from Dominic Carvalhoon, but now he just looks deadly. And in terms of the play that of what he's good at, I don't really see what more he could improve upon other than just getting better as he gets older type thing. He's not the kind of striker who's going to pick the ball but make a chance for himself, but that's fine. He doesn't have to be that player because we've got so many players around him like to Hammers and Charles, and you can do that. So... Yeah, I think I'm surprised the the volume of goals he scored, but I think every Evertonian probably knew the physique of the man is just, he's a beast, and it was all about us trying to utilise that and, and better him. And then I suppose at the other end of the pitch, um, the one big problem Everton have had this season is with Jordan Pickford. Um, a lot of mistakes, really lacking confidence, and then the incident with Van Dijk seems to have just really uh, shattered his confidence altogether. Um do you see Olsen getting a run on the side now to keep Pickford out of the limelight? Um, well, I think I would have said so, but I believe Ancelotti came out after the weekend and said that Pickford will be in next week. So it's one of them. I think you're not too sure what he's like behind closed doors. I think he's he's got thick skin from what you can sort of see of him, Jordan Pickford. And he's had a tough couple of weeks sort of on and off the pitch, as, as you touched on. So I think... If we're looking at a game in a couple of weeks where he does make a mistake and, and he costs Everton points, because whilst he hasn't been uh, great and he has made a couple of mistakes, he hasn't actually cost any points this season, which I think is is really important to the manager because it's just kind of like he's getting away with it, he's getting away with it. And then I think he just thought, I'll bring Olsen in for, for this week to prove to him that you can be replaced and no one is... Um, no, no one can't lose their, their place in the team. So I, w- I would have definitely said, yeah, I think Olsen will be in there for the coming weeks. But as I do believe he's come out and said that um, Pickford will be back in for Man United. And it's the man management of, of Carl Ancelotti. So I'm not going to argue it with too much. Um, I know John Pickford can be a really good goalkeeper. He had a great season in 17-18 when he first arrived at the club. And I think it was obviously the Van Dyke issue and the um, similarly the Van Dyke Origi situation from a couple of seasons ago. And obviously, made that big mistake. Those two things have, have really shattered his confidence. So we'll have to see how he performs on, on the weekend, assuming he, he sticks to his word and puts him in. But I think Evertonians are really behind Pickford now and they just need that goalkeeper back that we saw a couple of seasons ago. Yeah. Oh, watching the Newcastle match, when they were chasing the goal, they brought on Iwobi uh, and Tosin, which. You know, from an Everton perspective, must be quite worrying that kind of lack of depth. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think they'll do anything about that in January? Uh, well, I mean, you say you say it's not great to see from an Everton perspective. I was absolutely gobsmacked when I seen him on the bench. Um, I looked at the team lineup and I didn't even notice Tosin was on the bench until I scrolled down and someone said um, the worst thing about this lineup is Arami Sheng Tosin exists. And I went back up and I couldn't believe I seen him on the bench. I was just. I was absolutely gobsmacked. Uh, in terms of January, I don't think it's a window Marcel Brands typically likes to shop in because players' prices are inflated. They know that uh, teams want players 
because something's gone wrong in their season or because they need to capitalise on how good their season's going so teams are a little bit more desperate. I'd, I'd like to think so, but I think, you know, we could have gone and got Josh King out of Bournemouth for 10, 15 million. I would have been more than happy with that. He would have been really good backup and he didn't do it. So we'll have to see. I think with regards to Iwobi, he's, um, he, he's made decent impacts in games but then look at the Southampton game the week he started and he was absolutely terrible um, so it must be really frustrating for Ancelotti I think there is some depth but nowhere near the depth Everton needed they want to really truly do something but at the end of the day we've had one proper window under Ancelotti and he's improved the team tenfold so I'm not convinced they'll do something in January I think they'll probably just stick with what they've got unless they can get rid of the likes of Balassi and Bezic and Pennington who are somehow still clinging on for dear life at the club I think if we can try and find someone to, to take them off our hands then possibly, but I think they'll probably just leave it till the summer. James, um, I suppose from an Irish point of view, it's always good to get an update on Seamus Coleman. Um, you know, for the national side, now we're kind of stuck in a perennial debate of Seamus Coleman versus Matt Doherty. Um, and I suppose at Everton, Especially last season when uh, Gibraltar Sidibe came into the side, you know we were kind of wondering is Conan's time done, but he's he trucks along there regularly. He's keeps his place. He fights for his role, and he usually always you know gives a hundred percent. You can can't really fault him. What's what's the perception of Coleman at the club? Obviously, he came over from the League of Ireland for uh, for uh, pennies in the grand scheme of things, and mm-hmm. he's turned into a bit of a club legend. Like is. Is there a years left in him? Um, is he still playing at the at a, at a high level um, as he was um, a couple of years back for prior to um, the injury he uh, he sustained for Ireland? Well, I think when he came back from that injury, I think he was he was rushed back a little bit because our back four was John Joe Kenny, who was a, a kid, Mason Holgate, who was a, a little bit older but still a kid, Ashley Williams, who was an absolute car crash for a footballer, and same with Martin, who was playing left back. It was the worst back four I've ever seen. Um, so I think he was rushed back a little bit. We had a really bad season. He came back in and I think the first sort of six to 12 months, he, he wasn't great. And I was suggesting he probably should uh, get dropped. But since Project Restart, really, I think he's been absolutely fantastic. He was really good in the, the last derby, the, the nil-nil in probably July, I think it was, or, or maybe like June, I'm not sure. But he was really good in that game, I remember. And to be fair, since um, Project Restart, he's been really good. And this year, he's been absolutely excellent. And he's been a huge miss when he hasn't played, which I think, again, if you'd told me that 12, 18 months ago, I wouldn't have believed it because I felt like it was probably probably time to begin to move him out of the team a little bit. Stanley to how obviously, it happened to Leighton Baines. Uh, obviously, you talk about Tadipe coming in, who looked like an absolute beast at times and got a few assists sort of between September and December time, I think. But uh, he hit a hit a really poor patch of form and obviously Everton didn't sign him come the end of the season. But I think he's been a huge miss and it seems like he's struck up a really good relationship with Hammers. So when you talk about players that are out injured and you look at Hammers and Richardson and Dino, obviously injured or suspended, obviously. But you look at them three, I, I look at... Seamus Coleman has been a, a really big loss as well and it, it's it's really good to see because you don't want to have to move someone like him on or see him sitting and wasting away on the bench because he was absolutely fantastic for us five or six years ago. But yeah, I think as he gets older, obviously he might not get in the Ireland team as much because obviously Matt Doherty is a, a really good player, I think. Uh, whether he suits the system, I'm going to want to play for now. I'm not 100% sure, but I think if he keeps on playing like he is now at Everton, he, he could well be on drop off for the national side for, for the time being. Yeah, he could well play his way back into into things because um, 
the hardiest start is now the last couple of games in a row. But I think Coleman as well, considering he's a national team captain, um, he's, he's not going away, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, last couple of games obviously haven't been too great, but otherwise you've had a pretty good start to the season. Um, how have expectations changed, I suppose, from, from the summer compared to now? Like, Are you looking at the top four and thinking, you know, that's something we can target considering um, there's a lot of inconsistency so far across a lot of the big teams? Um, or are you a little bit more, uh, more you know, I suppose, neutral, less, uh, you know, top six, top seven, Europa League spot? Um, where are you uh, in terms of your uh, outlook for the season? Uh, well, to be fair, I, I've never really looked at the league table other than putting on like on my Instagram and stuff about how it's off in the league. And I was loving that for a few weeks. But other than that, all I'm bothered about is Everton winning a trophy. That's all I want. And I think you don't even have to finish that high up in the league to get into the Europa League. I think my I think my six aside team got to the third qualifying round this last summer because, because of how far down you can finish now. So I think if you finish... Eighth, and depending on who plays in the cups and and all that nonsense, I think you can you can still qualify. So honestly, all I'm bored about is Everton winning the trophy, and obviously if you win the league cup and, and come seventeenth, it's the best season we've had since probably two thousand four or or ninety five, two thousand four or five or, or ninety five, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, I think all I want is Everton to win a trophy. I think in terms of the league. It's funny because I, I think I actually wrote a piece of the website talking about how strange the season's been and how this couple of the year someone does something quite quite odd. Um, but whilst there's been a poor start for obviously the likes of, of City and, and United, Liverpool are looking stronger now as, as the games go on and, and still picking up wins. We've obviously lost a couple of games. So if Everton finished in the top eight, then that'd be all right. If Everton finished in the top 10 and win the League Cup or the FA Cup, that would be the best season I've seen Everton play, which is a little bit a little bit depressing. But at the end of the day, we've got to start somewhere and we've got to get that monkey off our back and, and win the, the first trophy for a long time and got the best manager and some of the best players I've seen play for Everton to do that. So, honestly, all I'm focused on is is that quarter-final game against United in, in late December. And obviously, if you can win that, then you're, you're only two games away from from Wembley. So, um, that's all I'm all I'm focused on, to be honest. But I think at this moment in time, if you could say to me, Everton will keep the same squad generally fit throughout the season. I think Everton definitely could get into that sacred top six everyone talks about. Great stuff, um, James. Definitely a big game to look forward there. So in a couple of weeks, um, thanks for very much for joining us this evening. Yeah, you're very welcome. Cheers for having me.